Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. I just want to pray before we open up the word together. Father, Father God, we thank you that you are a speaking God. We thank you, Lord, that your words carry life. They reach into our very hearts and bring us living water. This morning, Lord, I pray that you will not be limited by my limitations, Lord. But the Holy Spirit, you would speak unto us. Speak the words of life that Jesus brought. Give us the food we need as unto your word. And Lord, our hearts are ready. Lord, our hearts are open to receive, to listen, to be instructed, and to move at your direction, Holy Spirit. For we are above all things your servants. Amen. 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 Praise God. Wow. Um, I believe the Lord is being really clear with us at the minute about the place where we need to be, which is in his presence. It's not that that's not always the place to be, because it is. But right now, I think there's something new for us as a body of people to catch in the presence of God. I believe that God wants to do amazing things around the throne this morning. A few weeks ago, I spoke from uh, Hebrews about what we can expect when we come around the throne. And one of those things was a revelation every time we come around the throne of God. Not only of who he is, but who we are. It talks about us coming into the true tent of the Lord, and that's the house of God, and that's us. But not only that, coming into a place of revelation, as God spoke to us this morning, that that then becomes a transformation for us, that we're transformed in our thinking. And out of that transformation, God commissions us to go out and to continue the work that Jesus started and to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has spoken to us about that as well today. So I really believe that this is of utmost importance to us, to be attentive to what the Spirit is saying to us right now, about the importance of coming into his presence together, spending time around his throne together, that God wants to do new things in you and in me and in us together. Could you just turn with me to Hebrews 4? I'd like to carry on, really, some of the themes I picked up uh, a few weeks ago. And today, I've got it on my heart just to share with you about approaching the throne and this A few verses in um, Hebrews 4 and verse 14. We're going to read just three verses today. But I believe these three verses are packed with things that we need to know about approaching the throne of God. I'm going to wait for the rustle to die down. Hebrews 4, and we'll start in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are a wonderful few lines of the word, aren't they? And um, I just want to pull four things out of that for us today that I think will help you and equip you, and I trust lead us into fresh revelation today. The first thing is this, is that as we approach the throne, we have one who has gone before us. We follow one who has gone before us. And if you look in verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, let us. In other words, because he passed through the heavens, let us do something. It's important that he passed through the heavens. And the writer there is referring to Jesus when he was raised by the Spirit of God and ascended to the throne room and took his place. And I want you to imagine for a moment what that might have been like. Have you ever thought what that moment would be like when the Father and the Son came back together again after being completely separated and coming back together? We know that there are myriads of angels and angelic beings around the throne giving glory to God minute by minute, hour by hour. And I just wonder what it's like when Jesus came back. I imagine if you were all the angels around the throne, think of yourselves as angelic, 12 foot tall with swords shining. But all the angels would have been looking at the Father, but waiting waiting for the lamb. And then when he came, maybe they turned and they looked and they saw the Son of God in his risen glory. And I wonder if he raised his hands to the Father. And he came to the Father and raised the hands that had nail scars and said, Father, it is done. And then took his place by his father's side. I don't know what happened in that moment. I like to think that the father just embraced him. and said, well done, son. And he took his place. I'd like to have seen that. I'd like to have been one of those angels. In Ephesians 4, verse 9, Paul said this. He said, in, a saying, in saying he ascended... What does it mean that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And just in this little word, through, in verse 14, it means to go from one end of something to the other, from one side of something to the other. Jesus went to the lowest possible depths and came up all the way through creation, through every layer of heaven. And Paul talks about a third layer of heaven. I don't know what that means, but Jesus went through it. 
and came into the Father's presence, filling everything with himself, and held up his hands to the Father, nail-scarred hands. You know, for me, one of the most amazing scriptures I've ever read is in Isaiah 59, where the Lord says to his people, see, I have engraved your names on the palms of my hands. And I think about Christ and the nails that went through the palms of his hands and the blood poured out of those nail marks and they ran over my name because my name is on the palm of his hands. That my name has been covered by the blood of Christ. That I've been purified. There's only one way to approach the Father now. It's with nail-scarred hands. You see, we've been crucified with Christ. So when we come around the throne, we come as those who have been crucified and raised with him. Our marks are not outward, they're inward. Paul said to the Galatians, he said, see, I bear in my body the marks of the cross. Now, we're not talking about outward marks, we're not talking about stigmata here, but we're talking about inner marks. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, look, it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you've got. The only thing that matters is the cross, is the marks of the cross. It's the circumcision of the heart. And that's why he said, as for me, I died with Christ. It's now Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. So these hands are the only ones that the Father will accept now. What that means is that when we come into worship, there cannot be any trace of the natural. There cannot be any trace of the flesh. There cannot be any trace of our own efforts. Let me put it another way to you. The only way we come into God's presence is not 99% of what God has done and 1% because you weren't that bad a person to start with. You see, if our salvation depends at all on us, even if it's 0.001%, that's the part that's going to fail. It has to be all him and none of you. So when we come into the presence, we have to leave behind the slightest trace of our achievements, of our ambitions, of anything we've accomplished in this life. It has to be completely on what he has done for us. We follow one who has gone before us. But we follow as those who have died and have been raised to new life. And now the life we now live is the life Christ lives in us. You know, this reminded me of Jacob. I want you to turn with me to Genesis 27. This might sound like a leap, but I'll explain. My mind does tend to leap around, so when it comes to the scriptures. Genesis 27. Now, I'm going to set the context for you. Um, Esau and Jacob were twin brothers. Esau was the older brother and therefore had a birthright to come into as the firstborn. But Jacob was his mother's favorite. And so she put a scheme together so that Jacob could steal the birthright of Esau when he wasn't around. And in these few verses, in verse um, 15, Rebecca, that's their, their mum, 
she, it, it says this, Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on the hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So this younger son, who was very different to his older son, comes before his father, who was blind, and would feel his sons. She put the animal skins on top of him, because Esau was a hairy man. In fact, I think Esau, does it mean red or hairy or something like that? Red. He was a hairy guy. Whereas Jacob was a bit smooth. So the skins were placed on him. Not only to feel like Esau, but to smell like Esau, because he was out with the livestock. And it says that Rebekah took the best garments of Esau and put them on Jacob. And there's this picture of a son who shouldn't have inherited something coming into an inheritance. Now, I know that Jacob stole that inheritance, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that we've stolen anyone's inheritance. But I am suggesting that we've inherited something we didn't have a birthright to. And in fact, through the rest of the word, time and again, second sons inherit something that they shouldn't have inherited. There are loads of examples, right back from the first two sons. Cain and Abel. Abel inherited. He was the one with whom God was pleased. Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac was the second born, but the son of promise. Zerah and Perez, they were Judah's sons. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And the younger inherited and not the older. Even Solomon. Solomon was David and Bathsheba's second son. The son that they had that was born out of their sin died, sadly. Solomon was the second son, but the one to inherit. And even, dare I say it, Adam and Christ. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, the first Adam was the man of the dust, but the second Adam, the last Adam, because there need not be another, was a man born from heaven. He was the one who didn't fail. And the picture all the way through the world, I'd love to share more on it, and maybe I will one day, but in each of those stories of the second son inheriting, it's a picture of grace. And it tells us something about the grace of God, about inheriting something that wasn't your own, about by God's grace receiving something that you were not due, that you did not deserve. And as we approach the throne together, we have robes that were laid on us. The best robes of Christ have been laid upon you. And we smell like him and we feel like him because we're full of him. And I think sometimes when we approach the throne, we, have to, we kind of have to hold two things in tension together. There's a sense of being unworthy. And I don't think that ever really goes away, nor should it. Because when I stand before the throne, I know that I was unworthy to be here. I'm now worthy, but only because I'm wearing his robes. And sometimes I think it takes a lifetime for the Spirit to reveal to you and to me your unworthiness. We don't understand what sin is because God sees everything. When he spoke earlier about being blindfolding and seeing things in the spiritual realms, God sees that all the time. He sees the spiritual effects of sin in the natural realm. 
we're only seeing a part of the picture of the consequences of sin. God sees how sin is so toxic. And God takes a lifetime sometimes to show us what he saved us from right at the beginning. But the other thing is, is that we're fully accepted. We're unworthy, and yet we're accepted. We're not here by mistake. We're not here because we snuck in. We are now rightful heirs, only because the son who was worthy has shared that inheritance with us. And so when we come before the throne, we need to just remember every time that we have one who's gone before us. And because of him, we can come in with arms held high. We bear the same marks. We're accepted because he was accepted. We'll never be rejected. God will never turn us away. The second thing is this. Again in verse 14. If you go back to Hebrews 4. The second thing is this. Is as we come around the throne is that we must hold fast to our confession. He says this. Because Jesus has gone before us, then he says, let us. So let us do this. Let us hold fast our confession. Now that instruction is given for a reason. Every word in the the Bible is for a reason. This one is. Because sometimes we don't hold fast our confession, folks. When we come into the presence of God, our confession can sometimes get out of our control. That's what it means. Let me explain. Later on in Hebrews, it says this in chapter 10 and 23. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let me read that again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So how do we hold fast our confession? By remembering the faithfulness of God. Because we stand justified minute by minute by the intercession of Jesus around the throne. We never stand on our own merits. We're always standing on what Christ has done. So we have to be faithful to him and we have to have faith in his faithfulness to us. And I think we face two main hurdles in this whole thing when we come before the throne. The first one is the enemy. You see, as you're approaching the throne, there's also an enemy that doesn't want you to be here. will do anything to keep you from God's presence because he knows that this is your home He knows this is the place you're meant to be and he knows this is the place where you will be empowered in the presence of God. And the enemy will try to speak to you things that are not true about you and about the one who sits on the throne. He'll try to talk to you about your past. He'll try to talk to you about what happened yesterday that only you know about, that you're ashamed of. And here you are, standing in the presence. What a hypocrite. He loves that word. Not because he wants to bring you back to the truth and faithfulness, because he wants to take you away. He wants to put a wedge between you and God. And he'll whisper away in your ear. The second thing is this. 
our minds. Now, my personality is such that I'm, I'm quite a thinker, I'm an analyst, some would say a little bit cerebral, I wouldn't, appearances can be deceptive. But one of the things God taught me early on in my walk with him is that this is not the instrument through which I approach in the heavenly realms, because this is completely natural. And actually this has for years been conditioned to think a certain way. But the process of transformation in the presence and around the throne is where God changes this. But he does it through this. Always through the heart. By faith we understand. Not by thinking about it and debating it endlessly until we've persuaded ourselves that, yeah, that's probably the truth. It comes by revelation. And revelation can come in a moment. And so as we come into the presence, it's important that we come, as the Lord has told us today, like this. I love that picture of Deborah standing there with her scarf on. And, you know, I noticed that you reached for the microphone, Deborah, and Richard had to kind of place it in your hand. And I know it sounds obvious, but I thought, Deborah can't actually see anything right now. But that's what God was saying. He's saying, I so want you to see what's happening in the spiritual realms. I want you to come into my presence together. Whether it's in this room, whether it's in your bedroom, whether it's in your lounge, in your kitchen, whether there's two of you, whether there's 200 of you. But to come into this place and to see the enormity, he said, of who I am. There's too much of him for you to look at in one glance. You ever looked at the sky where there's no horizon encumbering you? Just the vastness. God's bigger than that. And as we come into the presence, I believe he wants us to see with the eyes of our heart. And as we do that, the transformation is that our minds will reject all those things that the enemy says. Because they're not the truth. What's your confession as you approach the throne? That's not rhetorical. What's your confession as you approach the throne? What's your confession about who you are now? What's your confession about who he is? About the reception that you will receive? What are you holding fast to? What are you holding fast to? When the storm comes in life, that's when you find what you're holding fast to. There's only one thing that we can be holding fast to, folks. And that's the confession of the truth of who you are in Christ and who you will always be, regardless of your experience, regardless of what even happened yesterday. Your destiny is secured. That which he started in you, he will finish in you, and he never fails at anything. The third thing is this. We need to embrace his humanity. That might sound like a strange thing to say. But as we come around the throne, we need to embrace his humanity. Let's just read from verse 15. 
So we hold fast our confession. Four, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Have you stopped to think about what that actually means? Because it's quite easy to read over those lines and not just let them sink in. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Who's got weaknesses? It doesn't mean our high priest is weak, but he can sympathize with our weaknesses because of what he's gone through. But in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet was without sin. Now, I think it's curious... I think lots of things are a bit curious in the word, if I'm honest. I don't know why he starts with a negative, the author. Let me tell you what you don't have. You don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with you. Why would the author say that? Unless that's what you were thinking. Because I think all of us, on more than one occasion have suspected that maybe Jesus doesn't know what it's like to live your life. Doesn't know what it's like to have your parents. Doesn't know what it's like to have your personality. Doesn't know what it's like to have gone through the things that you suffered. The losses you've had. Doesn't know what it's like to make the mistakes you've made. And that's the biggest lie of the enemy. Because the scripture clearly says, don't believe that. That's not true. We have a king who fully understands us. I cannot tell you the value of that. He's not afar off. You know, Mike's picture that he shared with us today about the treadmill. When you're running a treadmill, you, you don't go anywhere. It's like you're running towards something, but you never reach it. And God is saying, I'm not like that. I'm right here. Don't run for something that's afar off. Because I'm not there. I'm here with you. And not being afar off means I understand you. It says he was tempted in every respect as we are. That's enormous, isn't it, that statement? He was tempted in every respect. Not in most respects, Not in some, every respect, he was tempted. Think about this for a minute. If you're the son of God, you can't sin because you would have failed. You must be without sin to be a sacrifice for all sin. Now imagine what the enemy wants to do above all things. He wants to get you to sin. That's exactly what the devil did. Jesus went into the wilderness and actually let the devil take a shot. Put himself in the position where all of his natural limitations, just like us, he had them, were on display. And actually, testing him, his thirst, his hunger. And the enemy came, and the enemy threw everything he had at Jesus to get him to sin. 
So I think it's fair to say that there's no one else in the whole of history who's been tempted to sin as much as Jesus was. Otherwise, the devil wasn't doing his job properly, was he? So when we come before the throne, if we feel the weight of things we're tempted to do, we have one who's been tempted more than we have. He knows what that's like. Paul said that when he went to the cross, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, don't look it up, but you can write it down, 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is an incredible statement. For our sake, he, that's the Father, made him, that's the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It doesn't mean that Jesus became sinful. It meant that all the sin of the world was placed upon him. He who had never known sin, sin in all its ugliness. Think of the worst atrocities of history. Their sins, all placed on him. Not from afar, right in his face. Can you imagine what that was like? I don't think we've got the first clue what that was like for him. But I do know this. There's nothing in your life that shocks him. There's nothing in your life that he's not familiar with in all of its ugliness. Things about you that you don't want anyone else to know. Whether they're in the present or in the past. There's nothing like that that he hasn't seen worse. So don't ever tell him, you don't understand me. The Bible says that he was a man of many sorrows and knew more sorrow than anyone else, ever, period. So whatever pain you've had, I'm not belittling the pain that we go through, but I'm saying that we have a high priest who's gone through infinitely more pain than you and I have ever, ever suffered. So don't ever tell him you don't understand because he's gone through far worse. And he's done that to bring you to the Father. He took the worst of humanity into himself. We need to embrace his humanity, folks. We need to understand that he's walked in our shoes. Whatever you've been through, whatever you're going to go through, he's already been through it, and worse. So when we come before the throne... He understands you. He knows how you tick. He knows how you feel. That can never be a barrier. You know, we sang um, Crown Him With Many Crowns, the Chris Tomlin mishmash version, I like to call it. One of the verses in the original hymn, which is not in the Chris Tomlin version, is this. It says, Crown him the Son of God before the worlds began. And ye who tread where he hath trod. We're walking in his footsteps to the throne. Crown him the son of man. The son of man. He was a man, fully man and fully God. Who every grief hath known. Every grief hath known. That rings the human breast. And takes and bears them for his own that all in him may rest. 
He's taken all of that pain into himself so that you and I can come into the presence and let go of it and be at rest in his presence. Isn't that wonderful? Absolutely wonderful. There's nothing about you that he can't understand or that means he cannot accept you. The fourth thing is this. We come before a throne of grace and we come to lay hold of God's grace. If you look at verse 16, we've got our second let us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now, I think the words chosen were deliberate. We receive mercy and we find grace. Only God can give us mercy because it's him withholding something from us that we deserved. That's what mercy is. We become the recipients of mercy. Now, I know we receive the grace of God as well, but there's something in God's grace to be found. There's something in God's grace to lay hold of. And that's what we're being told here. Come before the throne, receive the mercy and be released, but lay hold of grace that I have for you. You see, that grace of God, it's like the wisdom of God. It's multifaceted. You know, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says um, that the church is the, 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 the display of his manifold wisdom his multifaceted wisdom, that it comes in many forms. And interestingly, Peter, when he writes to the church, he says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And there we have it. God's grace comes in various forms, and God has given it to you to steward Now, what do you steward? When you steward something, do you know what you're doing? You're looking after it, usually for someone else. So God has grace to give you around the throne for you to steward for others. It's not only grace for you, but it's grace for others. God's grace comes in many different forms and works out in many different ways. We often talk about laying hold of God's grace in situations. We're not talking about forgiveness. We're talking about a measure that comes from the Holy Spirit, a provision that comes, and it comes in the the grace of God because grace is unmerited favour. Paul talks to the Corinthians about grace. He talks about grace being sufficient in his weakness, so that he can lay hold of the power of God. So in our weakness, God's grace brings strength and is sufficient to do so for you and for those around you, because you are a steward of grace for them. He also talks about grace abounding to us. Grace is abounding to us in order that we could have everything we need for what God's called us to do. So whenever we feel, have I got what it takes to do all these things that God's telling me to do? The answer is yes, 
There's grace in his presence that will come abounding to you to give you everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need for the mission that the Father gave to the Son and the Son has given to us. It's God's grace. You know, Stephen, um, who was martyred, Stephen was was described by Luke as being full of grace and power. And then it said he performed many miracles amongst the people, by which I read to mean amongst all the people, the community in which he lived, not just the community of believers, but amongst the people. But what Stephen was full of was grace and power. And I believe those two go together. That when we lay hold of the grace of God, the power of God comes with it. The power of God is the effective working of the Spirit in you to a specific end. That's what it means to be dynamized to do something. Grace comes with the power of God. And I believe that around the throne, what happens is this. We catch God's heart. When we come close to him, we start to hear his heartbeat. And in his heartbeat, we can hear the yearnings of the Spirit for all the lost to come home. All the chosen ones, all the prodigals, the yearning to draw them back to himself. And the closer you get to him, the more you feel that yearning yourself. The more you see that, do you know what? That's all that matters. Nothing else really matters. Not the house I live in, my career, or even my family, or even living to be a grandparent or a great-grandparent. They're great things, but none of that compares to God's purpose for all of his children to come home. And that's what we receive around the throne, folks. We hear God's heart and we catch God's heart for those around us. Beth, could you just come out a sec? Beth had a picture that she just shared with me a bit earlier. You got the mic, Rich? And I just felt it was appropriate to share at this point. Um, Okay, so a few weeks ago, God showed me a picture, some of you may remember, and he was standing in a garden which went on forever. It was like the horizon, and there was rows and rows and rows forever of beautiful flowers, greenery. And he stood there, and he was tentatively looking after each flower and was looking up at me in between doing all this and smiling just at peace, just at rest in his garden. My heart was to go, but Lord, look, behind me was the world in absolute turmoil. It was dark, full of sickness, just not what I could see in front of me, this beautiful, peaceful place. My heart was to take his hand and go, but Lord, come with me. Look, we need to, we need to change this. And he said, no, look at me. Forget that. I see it, but you're to look at me. So I had to turn my back to it all and focus on him in his garden, in his throne room, if you like. So weeks have gone on and I've been spending this time, I'm obviously still cautious of what's going on and aware of it, but I've been focused on him, looking at him, spending time with him. And then this morning he said, okay, 
Now you turn around and you stand and you see with my eyes. You're blinded. I don't see what I saw before, the dark, the turmoil. Yes, it's still like that. But I see what he sees and I'm ready to go with him out to change what's happening with him, with his eyes. Fantastic. You see, when we come into the throne room, it's not a holy huddle. It's not a place for us to come and say, well, let's just enjoy the Lord together and let's let the world go to hell in a handbasket. But as we come into the throne room, we have to start here. Mission starts in the throne room because it's only in this place, the mountaintop, the presence of the Lord, that you can look at the world and see what he sees. When we see difficulties and impossibilities, he just sees possibilities, for nothing is impossible for him. When we see sicknesses that seem to persist and persist and persist like enemies that cannot be rooted, he says, I am a healing God. And folks, that's why it's so important for us to press in together into the throne room, to be at his feet, because we will start to see the world around us very, very differently. I'm longing to see the world around me differently from being in his presence. You know, we sang a bit earlier, one of the songs we sang, one of the lines was, your blood has covered my sin, your grace has empowered me to win. And in this place where we receive grace upon grace, we have grace to fulfill the mission that God's given us. When we approach the throne, we follow in Jesus' footsteps. We have to hold to our confession of who he is and who we are in him. We have to never forget that he understands us. He understands, he gets you. He gets you and he gets me. And he loves you so much. There's nothing you can do to put him off or turn him away from you. Nothing. He's seen it all. Your past, your present, and your future. And he embraces you. And we need to lay hold of God's grace, not just for us, but for all those around us, so that we are an outpouring of God's grace from this place before the throne. I'd like us just to come back to sing a song together, and I want to provide just an opportunity for you just between you and him as you're singing just to ask the Lord that this place of his presence would become your home that he would draw you further in I believe for every person in this room I know that all of us have different experiences when we're worshipping I get that. No one will worship necessarily the same way. No one will have the same experience. But what I don't accept is that the Spirit of God is any less in me than he is in you. What I don't accept is that any of us have to be less full of the Spirit than we want to be. We can be as full of him as we choose and want and desire to be. And I believe for every single one of us that God wants to lead you on a personal journey 
into a fresh revelation in his presence till you feel overwhelmed, till you start to see things that hit you that you've never seen before. This is not fanciful thinking, folks. This is God's will for your life. And he sees possibilities where we sometimes think things are not going to change. Well, they are going to change because all that God's called us to do, we need to be in this place and he needs to lead us higher to see things as he sees them and to empower us by his grace. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.